Welcome to Radio Recall, CIT's look at its past through the eyes and ears of its volunteers. The radio station came into being in 1965 as the University of Toronto Radio Club. It was a closed-circuit station for the first 22 years of its existence. In 1987, we became an FM broadcaster in Canada's largest city, Toronto, assigned to 89.5. I'm Steve Rootman, along with my co-host Peter Stamp, and this week's guest is Dave O'Rama who began his association with the radio station on its very first day of operation as an FM broadcaster. That was on January the 15th, 1987. Over the years, he's hosted a variety of great programs here at CIUT and is the current host of the Lovecast, heard each Saturday at 4 p.m. Dave, who lives near Nanaimo, British Columbia, on Lovecast Island, was in town recently, so we conducted this interview. We had lots to talk about, so let's listen to the interview with Dave Orama. You're listening to CIUTFM, of course, 89.5 at of University of Toronto. Hello and welcome to Radio Recall. It's Steve Rootman and Peter Stamp with you for another edition of Radio Recall, which looks at the history of CIUT and the people that have made it what it is today. And we got a real winner today. We have Dave Orama, who started here when? Around 1986 or something? Hi. Uh, hi. Hi, Peter and Steve. Uh, thanks for having me on the show. It's great to have you on the show, Dave Orama. Thanks. I, I'm here visiting from the west coast of Canada where I produce the show. We'll get into all that, but when did you start here? My history with CIUTFM started on January 15th, 1987, an hour before it went to air. Wow. Okay, so were you present when they uh, flicked the switch and everything? Yes, I was. I, what, what was that like? I had been doing work for CFMY and I'd heard about CIUT um, launching and getting its license. I was doing work for Joanne Smale and a friend of mine was doing some work for Joanne Smale Productions and I guess they hosted the reception for the launch. So I came down to go to the reception and meet the people who were putting the station on the air. So I walked in an hour before they launched and I wasn't really up in the studio, I was kind of mingling with everyone, having some hors d'oeuvres and chatting with people. And so I didn't hear the close the door thing yeah. that everybody talks about. <laughs> okay, that was the first words ever spoken on FM on CIUT were close the door. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's the uh, history. Yeah, yeah, I was yeah. in the building, but I, I wasn't in the studio. So, yeah. So what was it like? What was the atmosphere like? I think people were really excited. I didn't know anybody. I came in, like I said, an hour before they went to air. Um, I'd been working up at CFMY doing some stuff up there. You can ask me about that if you want to know about that. That's kind of my radio history. But I decided I'd investigate CIUTFM because I was really interested in the license that it was like a, a quite a bit of spoken word and quite a bit of music. So it was covering both. So that was interesting to me. And everybody was very excited. And one of the things I noticed, I, I, well, I, I asked to get involved. And one of the things I noticed right away was it was best case scenario. They had a really great staff. They had hired more than enough people to run the station. And that is not something you normally see in community and campus radio. Normally, there's not a lot of financing, bare bones uh, staff. And so they had a really healthy staff right at the beginning. 
not only did they have a program director for music, but they also had a music director. They had a program director for spoken word. They had an assistant program director for spoken word. They had a couple of managers. They had Tom as the, the news guy. There was lots. They were covering a lot of roles at that time. And about a year later, they almost went broke. It wasn't a year later. It was, <laughs> it was six months later. Six actually. months? Only six months, right? Yeah. Uh, just to give a bit of my history, sure. I walked in... And I had gone to broadcasting school, and I'd ha- I have a background in uh, a bit of a background before I came here in radio, which you can ask me about later. But I knew just from experience that I, I realized this is the kind of guy I am. But it only came to me recently. But I've been doing this through- throughout my life. I knew that a lot of people were going to be wanting radio shows for music. Right? I'm a music guy. I'm a broad spectrum music lover. That was my interest. But I also knew that everybody would want a music show. So I instead approached Ron Lavoie, who was the spoken word program director, and said, I would like to be involved helping you with spoken word production because I knew that was a way of getting involved with the station and getting known, but not going straight for the music program. So that's what I did. So Ron hooked me up with a show that was being produced called The Dream Consortium. And this was in a time where we were cutting reel-to-reel tape. So, yeah, splicing it. Splicing reel-to-reel tape. And so basically the show was about interviewing prominent uh, novelists. Um, Ron would do an interview with the the visiting novelist, and then we would have them do a reading. And I would take that and cut it up so that the interview – occurred at the beginning of the show. It was an hour show. And then I would take the readings and I would go into the music studio, the music department and pull out vinyl. We only had vinyl at the time. And I would find all kinds of ambient music and harmonic music and very kind of low key background soundtrack music. And I would create soundscapes with it to go behind the readings. So it was like interview and then soundscapes with the author's reading. And we had people like uh, Rohinton Mystery and Margaret Drabble and um, Alberto Minguel and Eric McCormick. And also I would, in my capacity of producing the show, they would also send me out to record visiting authors who were speaking at Hart House and places like that. So I had to carry around a really heavy Nagra reel-to-reel recorder to do remote recordings, wait a ton. It sounds like a wonderful uh, way to release your creativity. Well, what it was doing was I was helping to produce spoken word And I like learning new things, so I could really develop my editing chops in the studio and be creative by creating soundscapes for the the readings. Yeah, Yeah, and the editing, you know, in in those days, what a... What a different world it was. Absolutely. <laughs> My God, you know. Razor blades. Razor blades and scotch tape and yeah. stuff like that. Yeah, basically. that's exactly what was going on. Yeah. My goodness. Yeah. And so, I, I love your strategic approach. You, you you recognized out of the gate that a lot of people wanted would want to do uh, music shows. Mm. But your, your entree, which was strategically thought out, was to start out doing the spoken word stuff and then use that as an entree to to move into what you eventually ended up doing. Is that correct? Yeah, and I've done that before with other stations. For instance, one station asked me to get involved on a board level after I left here for a while and moved out west, 
And I worked on their board of directors for a year and a half before I ever made a proposal to do a, a music program. It's interesting when you said the board. I was thinking of the the soundboard. The, the soundboard. <laughs> no, no, the board of directors. He was working on the board. I was also on the board of directors here briefly as well. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Very cool. How did you get involved in radio at the beginning? Like, where was your um, your first intuition that you wanted to be a radio guy? Well, I. Mostly because I'm a broad spectrum music fanatic and I've been like that since I was a child. And so my father was into the folk revival movement of the 60s and turned me on to a lot of folk musicians and blues musicians. And he was a big Pete Seeger fan. So I was always going to Pete Seeger concerts and he was a Woody Guthrie fan. And he took me to Sonny Terry and Brownie McGee at the riverboat when I was about 14. But as a kid, he helped me build a, a crystal radio set. And so I would listen to the radio. Now I've heard you guys discuss, you know, your favorite DJs back then. I didn't retain a lot of that information, but in the late 70s, when I was a teenager, I found CFMY mm. when they were at their most creative yeah. and open, right? So, and my favorite show was on Sundays, Liz Janik. She did a show. And at that time, those programmers were allowed to basically program whatever they wanted to. So I would call Liz Janik up. I made friends with her. I asked her out for dinner. I took her out to dinner. I was 18 years old. She was, I think, 27 at the time. I grew up in the Northwest area of Toronto around the Jane Strip, Jane Finch area, but all my interests were coming downtown and trying to experience live music. I was big into second run cinemas and going to a lot of underground cinema. So I'm as big a movie fanatic as I am a music fanatic, but also I would go to my public library and just borrow music, anything from Book of White to Indian music, all over the place, uh, progressive jazz. So I've always been into all kinds of music. I don't follow any group. And I, I'm, I, I call myself a musical nomad because I, I, all the people in the rockabilly tribe know me, all the people in the reggae tribe know me, all the people in the jazz tribe, but I'm never, you know, a member who dresses in their, in their tribal clothing. I kind of move around. I yeah. think that is great. You know, I, I have a lot of respect for people that are eclectic in their tastes. They're, they're not committed to just one genre. Like, like jazz or blues. It sounds like you, you appreciate lots of different genres. I refer to myself as schizophonic <laughs> and, <love> <laughs> and global sonic. And yet, and yet I will say that if you want to specialize, that's where you get popular. It's a whole other mindset of people that will tune into a show like the show I do, where they might tune in one week and it's like a whole bunch of funk or sometimes I specialize, sometimes it's it's just a mishmash of stuff. But there's a certain type of people who are into that. Back in the day, if you walked into the studio during the reggae show, the phones were ringing off the hook because all the reggae fans want to dedicate a song to this person, that person. But so you get more popular doing specialty shows. And so I've always gone against the grain. And to continue with my history, I was very much into the punk rock scene. Even though I was into all kinds of music, the underground punk clubs in around 1977, like the Crash and Burn, they wouldn't ask a 16-year-old like me for ID to get in. So those were the places that I was able to get in to see new music. So I was very big into Canadian music at a time where radio stations just thought it was a pain in the ass to have to fulfill their CanCon requirements. I was very much into Canadian underground music. So I put that across to Liz Janik. 
she thought that would make a great show. But I moved to England for a year. And while I was in England, she had me doing some uh, some reports from England. I wasn't very good at it. I didn't get a lot of um, instruction. I was only 18. And then I came back and Lee Carter kind of took that over and became quite popular as their as CFMY's uh, British correspondent. And then uh, she posted, she put across to David Marsden that we produce a show which she called The Streets of Ontario, all focusing on Canadian music. And David didn't have any room for it at the time, so he basically said no to it. And then I went to broadcasting school at Seneca College. And while I was there for my first few years, Liz married a newscaster at CFMY called Peter Goodwin. May he rest in peace. He passed away last year. And my condolences to Liz and Peter's family. Peter was a really great guy. So Liz and Peter got married and they proposed the show to Marsden while I was in school. And someone had dropped out of CFMY. They'd gone on the air and got themselves in trouble and left the station. So there was a slot and Peter and Liz ran in and said, can we put this on the air now? So then I came back for the first year or so and helped them produce that show. So what did you actually do on the show? I helped operate. I ran their music library. I would uh, be Liz's assistant on things. Sometimes she had to go downtown to work at the uh, Technique Showcase studio at the top of the CN Tower. And I would go down there and work with her on that. And, and just basically, you know, music programming and, and helping them, you know, run all that, all the background stuff, you know. So CFNY in 1979, that was the beginning of the glory years. Yeah. And then once I got involved later, after I got out of school, CFNY got really really hooked on to the kind of like electro new romantic electro pop stuff coming out of England. And in my opinion, I thought they got fixated on that. Whereas previous to that, the programmers were really allowed to play whatever they wanted to play. But then they started kind of uh, bringing in these color coding things where when someone's doing a set, it's like, oh, I have to play a red dot. So they weren't telling them exactly what to play, but there were certain music designated as the red dot music and they had to there were certain stipulations they started bringing in yeah what was it like working uh, with uh, david marston i didn't know david very well he was the boss and i was more working with peter and liz i met a lot of the people there and david was a nice guy and i remember going to the uno awards which were at the top of the cn tower and partying with those guys but i didn't work with david very much so well, i couldn't say was terry mcgillicott there at the time i my memory's really okay. bad for that stuff. Okay, so, no, that's, yeah. that's fair. But I recall my son, who was born in 1972, uh, was really turned on to CFNY, and he probably would have been about nine at the time. Okay, and, yeah, and, yeah. And it was like, like yourself, very creative, kind of out of the box, uh, loved the stuff. Right. That, that CFNY was playing at the yeah. time. So that's the, the culture that you started at. Mm -hmm. How was it different when you came to CIUT? Well, basically, to get up to CFNY, it was way up in Brampton, so it was very hard for a young person like me. I eventually was working downtown at a place called Celtec Satellite Systems, which was right next to City TV Much Music, and that was the initial start of using technology to eradicate jobs. It was like mm. they were basically syndicating generic programming so that you didn't have to hire an overnight person, but it was pre-digital. So what they were doing was they were sending tones down 
the line to all the subscribing stations and they would, you know, remember carts we used to have yeah, there? Yeah, I remember yeah, carts. They, they'd have a whole stack of them and the tone would set them off and yeah. then we'd do that. So Celtech was where I worked and then I got a job at the University of Toronto Media Centre. So I was a supervisor in the Sydney Smith Building and which was right across the street from CIUTFM. But the reason I came to CIUTFM to answer your question was because I am an out-of-the-box person. I'm broad-spectrum and I knew that I would be allowed to do that. You were doing a lot of things at the station back in the late 80s. You weren't just doing a radio show. You were also helping people. You were teching for people. Filling in a lot? Yeah, a lot of fill-ins. If you were, if you're a broad-spectrum person like myself, then I would fill in for Bill King. I would fill in for Lee's Waxer, like pe- very different shows. People knew that I could do a jazz show or I could do a punk rock show or whatever. So people would ask me to do that. Talking about um, or thinking about, you had Rohint and Medora on, and he talked about how like people come in and they have their heads down and they focus on what they're doing, and then they leave and they're not really interested in the administration or the inner workings or whether we're financially stable. <clears throat> but I'm one of those people that get involved because I realize that we won't have this facility unless some people make sure that it stays healthy. So what happened was. I was doing the Dream Consortium for six months and then I applied for a music show and Mr. Pete, Peter Snell was the program director for music and he gave me a Monday morning show from six to nine and then Karn Stevens was doing six to nine on Fridays and she couldn't do it so she switched with me. So I took over Friday but I remember the day that we found out that we had, were $250,000 in debt or something yeah, like that. it was in Now Magazine and yeah, everything. Yeah, so we had a big meeting and then we all went for, you know, drinks afterwards and Pete told everybody, he went, yeah, Dave's taking over the uh, morning show on Friday or Monday. It was Monday when he first gave it to me. And he said, it'll probably be his first and last show. <laughs> and so I'm happy to be here. Still yeah, I would doing say it. 35 years later. Yeah, so 36 years later. So uh, yeah, 35, 35 and a half 36, years. 36, you're right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, so I always remember that he said it would probably be my first and last show. Well, it's the kind of thing that kind of gets your attention, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so because we were in a crisis situation where we now were $250,000 in debt, all this great staff that we had in place that were really running the station well, had no paychecks. So they all had to leave to find jobs and we had nobody running the place. So we had to, as volunteers, a core group of volunteers had to step up and try and run it on nothing. And we were paying the bank, I think, you know, ridiculous monthly rates to pay this debt back. So we really had no money. So the first thing, and I'd like to, Ken mentioned this with Rohinton about music committees and spoken word committees and Shauna Farkas. Those were secondary. The first music committee was formed by volunteers and I was asked to come aboard. And that was right at the six month mark when we went bankrupt 
Karn Stevens approached me and said, there's a group of programmers who are forming the music committee because we have no program direction and we need people to do that. So I remember interviewing Steve Fruitman here. I remember interviewing Ken Stower. I remember training them on the board so that they could start their shows. So there was an initial music committee that was created at the six month mark. Chris Compton was another person. Chris Compton, Steve Russell, I think Adam Sobolak was on it. There was a number of people. Yes. I I don't think Mark Weisblatt was on it, was he? No, I don't think so. But I think he did come in and talk (laughs) once in a while. I think it's so great that yourself, sir, and Mr. Fruitman and Ken Stower, you know, we're talking about way back then. And you are all here now, actively engaged in CIUT. I think it's wonderful. I actually think that it's amazing because if you think about it, there are a lot of radio hosts that have come through the commercial radio stations in the city that do not put the amount of time in on the air that people like Steve Fruitman have. 35 years. Ken's been on the air just as long. Just as long, yeah. You know, there are many people, there's some of them have returned, but there are many people who've not gone away. Then there's people who've been here well over 20 years, some over 30 years. And these people are amazing. As far as the music programmers, they were always an amazing resource to me. As a music lover, I loved hanging out with especially people who do specialty shows like Chris Compton did the blues show. These people taught me so much. I think you know? I think what we're, what I'm hearing is you, you folks, I don't want to overstate it, but you folks are the heart and soul of CIUT and so many other stations. Well, you just can't get rid of us, that's why. <laughs> <laughs> but so many other stations, you know, on-air personalities, they come and go, you know, the, the, the longevity. When we start talking about 20 years, 25 years, 30 years, I mean, that that is special and it's so unusual. I think you'll agree. Can I break in here? Because yeah. like Dave can say the same thing properly. How many people that we've known have gone through our doors over the years. It's phenomenal. Amazing, yeah. 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 And I would say that I got such an amazing musical education from people here, like Steve, who's into folk and and all that, and Chris, who's into blues, and Patrick Roots, and Sister Sheila, who was... uh, Sheila Sheila Knopper, yeah. Sheila Knopper was originally Patrick's co-host. She lives where I live now. She lives on... Demon Island, which is about an hour north of me, and we're still in You touch. live on Lovecast Island. I live on Lovecast yes. Island, and, and she lives on Denman Island, which is an hour north, and we uh, she moved there in 2002 after living in the United States for a while, and we reconnected. In fact, a great story about how I reconnected with Sheila Knopper was I had just started my second show on a, a new community radio station in Nanaimo, and she had come up from the States and moved to Denman Island, and she was on the radio looking for something decent to listen to, and she came across my second show. Beautiful. <laughs> and she goes... She recognized the voice goes, right away? wait a sec, I know that voice. And exactly. She, and she called me up and on the, the request line and said, Dave, I just moved here. You know, and I've been trying to find her for a long time because I wanted to tell her that Lee's Waxer had passed away and I could not find her and she found me on the radio. Well, you know, relationships, we're talking about relationships, long-term relationships. And I think, you know, speaking as the old guy here. We're as, not far as, behind you. As, <laughs> as well, yeah, as, as we go through the journey and as we move through, we attach more importance to relationships, how darn important relationships are. And, I, you know, prior to going on the air this afternoon, you know, when you guys gave each other a big hug, I could, I could feel how 
genuine that was. And and where I'm going with this, folks, is, you know, right here now in, in, in 2023, if anybody's interested in, you know, exploring the opportunities that are here at CIUT, we're looking for volunteers. We're always. Looking, we're always yeah. looking for folks to get involved. It's a lot of fun. And, you know, maybe 10, 15, 20 years from now, you'll be talking about a relationship that you developed. In other words, Peter and I will be interviewing you 15 mm-hmm. years from now. Mm-hmm. Is that what you're saying? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I guess so. I like the way you think positive. <laughs> I remember when. <laughs> well, I started with this station when I was 25, and now I'm 62. So, really? Well, yeah. you're a young 62. Oh, thank you. <laughs> I'm 95, and I know I don't look it. But <laughs> you look great for 95. Yeah, yeah. So... Uh, the community here, back in the day when people used to hang out at the station. Sleep I, there sometimes. I'd sleep there and just like all the diversity of people and the diversity of music that they're into and all the great spoken word programming. And we also did, as far as getting involved, being a person who really liked to get involved to make sure the station was healthy. I was one of the people who helped kind of establish fund drives because we really needed money. Yep. Those are very difficult to run, but yep. we had to do them. Yep. You also uh, designed the best t-shirt we've ever had, apparently. I was the person who was the coordinator on that t-shirt, and uh, I think I sent you an email about it. Yes, you, you did. Ma- you mentioned it on one of your shows, Community Active Radio for a Radioactive Community, which uh, is a tagline that D.B. Hawks said to me one day, and I thought it was brilliant. I t- and it glowed in the dark? And it glowed in the dark. So basically, it was that reference to Radioactive, <laughs> and then I had two artists work on it together. They didn't get along very well, so I had to hold them together, uh, but we got the t-shirt done, and it was done in glow in the dark. And CIUT 89.5 FM, Community Active Radio for a radioactive community. I still well, have two of them, actually, and they, yeah. still, they still fit me. And thank you, David, for your, um, your contribution. Oh, thanks. Um, no, yeah. it's, 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 it's becoming very apparent to me how big a contribution you have made, and I mean that very oh, sincerely. Oh, thank you. Yeah. An- another thing we did, and Steve knows about this because he was involved, is um, we have now, and I'm really happy that this has continued, we go and we do live broadcasts from events, and we started doing that in the early days, and we had no yeah. we had no money, right? We, somehow we got into WOMAD Festival and stuff, like WOMAD. broadcast live from there yep. with the equipment. We didn't even have headphones that worked, you know, and we managed to put things over the air like that. And it worked. Yeah, D.B. Hawks was um, always doing live broadcast, so I got to give him credit for that. So D.B. was on board. And what we would do, like one of them was getting to Mariposa up in Molson Park. So I put together a crew of people to do interviews and we were behind Molson House and we had all these picnic tables and we had like three different setups and bands could play live. We could do interviews and I had people that I would assign to different artists and uh, even um, like a couple of programmers, Jen Norfolk and Alan Baiklin. Oh, Jen had purple hair in those days. And they they met at (laughs) Mariposa. Exactly. They met at Mariposa working on that crew and uh, Alan asked her out and they got married because of that connection over Mariposa. Well, it was, it was Jennifer Norfolk that suggested that I come to CIUT in the first place. Oh, I was really? delivering mail on Darcy Street in Toronto and she lived there. Right, right. And I used to talk to her about radio and I said, I was thinking of putting a proposal in at CKLN. And she said, don't do that. You have to come to CIUT, you know. <laughs> I said, okay, well, I'll try it out. And I found that it was like bankrupt at the time and yeah, yeah. going through a lot of management changes. But uh, 
here I am. So we started doing that, and you mentioned WOMAD. I did my show live from the cafe at Harborfront for WOMAD. DB recorded it. I still don't have the recordings. I'm hoping. <laughs> You'll I'm never ho- get them. I'm hoping DB <laughs> will give me the recordings one They're day. down the black but hole. We, we, I had Hassan Hakmoon, who's a Moroccan musician, play live and interview him. I had Mouth Music play live, and I had the Bad Livers play live on that well, one Well, the Bad show. Livers are great. Yeah, so they yeah. all played live on that one show. I remember stealing the Jolly Boys and Thomas Mapfumo yeah. and whisking them off to the studio and David Hope got some roti from uh, one of our advertisers and we had them play live in the studio so that was a lot of fun too. Where else are you going to hear the bad livers? (laughs) (laughs) So starting to do these remote recording things spread into a group of programmers we got them together and we would do play-by-play for the caravana parades, all kinds of stuff. So I'm really proud that that's been kept going over the years and, and, they, and they still invest. In yeah, we're still it. doing that. It's all so special to use that word. CIUT 89.5 FM is still doing a lot of very special stuff. Okay, let me break in here because I have to say you're listening to Radio Recall here on CIUT FM 89.5 University of Toronto Radio with Peter Stamp, myself, Steve Fruitman, and of course, Dave O'Rama the host of Lovecast. And speaking of special stuff. Our guest. Yeah, what, what is the special stuff? Well, us. Okay. <laughs> and maybe I should mention my show history here as well. Alligator Wine. Well, I, well, I started. You had one before that. I started you? with Dream Consortium, right. which was the what we talked about, and then I did the morning show, which was called Headstrokes. That's and, right, Headstrokes. And people thought it was a rude name, but it, it actually was a rude name. It, no, it's, come, come to think <laughs> it's of it, still a rude name. It's still a very rude. <laughs> it, actually, it is a reference to. Uh, I had a couple of women friends who were promoters in, in Toronto, put on rockabilly events, and I remember after one of the events, they were really tired out, and one of them offered the other one a scalp massage and said. Can I give you some head strokes? So it actually, in <laughs> so reference. that resonated, obviously. Yeah, and it, re- it was in reference to a scalp massage. Well, like, likely story, David. So I did that show for quite a while, and then I ended up on Saturday night briefly with Rudy Notice Jr., and then I went to Friday night's and Alligator Wine, which was great because then I joined up with Rick Fronick, who was a, a host on uh, About Town, <laughs> And what I loved about Rick was he was at the Mariposa stuff that we, we were doing the remote recordings and Rick was the kind of guy you could throw him in front of an artist with 30 seconds notice and he would pull off an interview. And we're talking about pre cell phones, all that stuff, pre email. Rick would line up artists and I, my agenda was to do at least one in, on alligator wine, at least one interview every show if not two so rick would go and line them up and he would sometimes do interviews and i would sometimes do them but my thing was i wanted to put the best person for the interview in front of the mic so i would ask programmers from other shows like if i had a really amazing you know a legendary blues artist on the show i would invite chris compton to come on my show and interview that artist i wanted the best interview not necessarily me doing it right And also with Headstrokes and the morning show on Friday, I was approached by a place called the CD Bar, which was uh, a place that opened on uh, Queen Street, right near Much Music there. And it was a guy who was like, CDs were brand new, and he was starting the CD Bar where you could go in and listen to the stuff before you buy it. 
and he bought us our first CD players as a sponsorship of my show. That's how we got the CD players. That's how yeah. you got the CD players, yeah. So so much history. Yeah. I yeah. love it. I love yeah. it. It's, yeah. uh, you know, my God. Well, of course, there, there were some great names back then. You mentioned Alan Bakeland, mm -hmm. who just passed away a couple of years ago. Mm -hmm. And, uh, of course, yeah, after he left CIUT, he went to CJSW in Calgary for numerous years. Mm -hmm. What was his boot? The bootlick stomper, the boot heel stomper. Boot something. heel stomp, I think. And, you know, and then you guys did posty talk. I remember that. Well, you know, that was, that was really interesting. It was, um, I was on at 10 o'clock mm -hmm. on Monday as my first show. And he was on between 8 and 10. And we had no idea that we were posties, except he called and showed the Twist and Postman. <laughs> and then one day, both in uniform, we get on a streetcar and we look at each other. And it was like, you work for the post office? <laughs> so we started talking between our shows about the post office. Yeah. And, you know, we said some things that we could have easily gotten fired for if anybody was listening. Mm -hmm. And uh, that show went off for about two years, a little show between our shows. Nobody at the station knew it existed. And at fundraising time one year, I think we got about 150 bucks in 10 minutes mm -hmm. from people in the plant. You know, I'm loving, I'm loving the, the names of the different shows. Oh, yeah. I mean, just, I mean, it would be fun just to go through sometime a list of all of the, the different names of the different shows. There were some pretty interesting ones. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I can't remember them all. My, my brain only remembers so much. But it's Alligator been, Wine, that's a good one. That's named after a, uh, a Screamin' Jay Hawkins song, which was written by Lieber and Stoller, actually. Oh, but, really? Yeah. And they it, did a lot of Presley stuff, too, didn't yeah, they? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So it was a weird song, uh, but they wrote it for Screamin' Jay Hawkins. Okay, yeah. let's talk about the Motoff. I've, I've mentioned this before. Dave Orama claimed to have the biggest mouth on the radio in Toronto. <laughs> I did? <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> okay. I didn't know that. And uh, the mouth, or uh, Dan Lebransky, a doctor mouth nowadays, he's graduated to yeah. a doctor. Yeah. He's Dr. Mouth. And uh, he thought he had the biggest mouth. And these guys did a, I think, eight hours you blended your two shows on a friday night saturday morning and i think at four o'clock in the morning it ended you know you just reminded me of this it has left my memory i do not well you lost actually i, I just, yeah yeah i probably lost. Yeah. well look who was up apparently against, you were you know? falling asleep well you know i i would i wouldn't have lasted five minutes with that guy let alone how did six i do hours. how did i do i don't you remember. did excellent oh okay cool you know, yeah. for for a longest time, you guys were holding your own, and but the mouth was starting to take an advantage towards the end. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, I mean, there's all kinds of crazy stuff going on at that station, especially the old building. It was it had bad wiring, so it was really, really, really hot in the summertime. So hot, like I like the heat. It was so hot that people on air could not say anything about anything other than how hot it was <laughs> and you go up there and mr pete would be doing his show in his underwear and just sweat dripping off of him i've seen jeff cohen in his underwear i've there. seen jeff in his underwear yeah, yeah. too like yes. you know it was so hot and you could not put air conditioning in there there's lots of interesting stuff db was fascinating for me because uh, people just played live on his show and i remember one easter there were just lineups of gospel groups all down the stairways he had like six gospel groups waiting in line to perform on his show on easter sunday so lots of interesting things like that Most wonderful afrofest was another one yep. that uh, we broadcast live for about 30 years yep, that's right and db did just about all of that yep yep i went to the montreal jazz festival with db and camped out there for two weeks and he's a gorilla recording artist <laughs> he just goes and bootleg stuff if he's not given permission <laughs> he, and yeah he, he's a 
invisible. He'll just like put his recording gear down and then just dance around and people don't even know. I remember at the Mariposa Folk Festival in 1989 Mm -hmm. in the performer's campground, there was a bunch of us that had our guitars and we just started jamming. And DB was sitting there crouched like squatted down on a on a he can make himself into a ball mm-hmm. yeah with his uh, sony walkman tape recorder and of course he put it on the air the following week mm-hmm. and we were wondering what did i say did i say anything incriminated did i say anything bad because everybody's going to know who you are you know it, it was unedited mm-hmm. who knows what people say Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, he was amazing at recording yeah. all kinds of stuff. He, there, I forget the name of the place. There was this bunker down near Kensington Market where they put on reggae bands. And Oh, that know. place. That was on yeah. Oxford Street. Yeah, uh, yeah. The speakeasy that got raided while he was on air. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, the police were raiding it, and DB was, the cops are here. <laughs> <You know? laughs> I, I remember um, I worked for the media center, so I got a camera, and I joined him on the Brazilian float at the Caravana two flatbed trucks, dancers, Brazilian drummers and singers, and I'm wandering around on this flatbed with a camera, and he's got his recording gear recording the whole thing, and we were just baking in the sun. We were like last float in the parade, and I just got sunstroke so bad, man. Back in the day when you didn't think about wearing a hat, (laughs) there was no such thing as sunscreen. So yeah, lots of adventures in recording. That's kind of what DB was kind of the person who inspired that let's do a lot of remote broadcasting and recording. Sure he was. Yeah, yeah. You know, the the culture of, of CIUT has always been so supportive of the creative spirit. And, 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 you know, what we're talking about, all these creative ideas and ventures uh, and fun, it, it's been fostered by a very supportive environment where basically you have the freedom to do your thing. Mm-hmm. And keeping in mind that the listener is number one, you know, is the listener going to want this? There's no point doing it if the listeners aren't listening. But, you know, one of the things that holds true today as much as ever, I think, is, you know, we are allowed to do things that, quite frankly, just, you know, other radio stations are not allowed to do. And that's why I don't have a career in radio is because I do what I do and I call it global sonic schizophonic and <laughs> I and I find commercial radio incredibly narrow even to this day yeah. I feel and no offense to anybody who chooses that as a career but I don't like the sound of my voice enough to just make that the only thing that matters I'm here to turn people on to music yeah. that when I was a, a kid I was the kid that would buy records even though the radio wasn't playing those records I would risk my money on those records, right? I want to ask a few questions that if you monopolize the time, we're not going to get them on air. Well, so. let's just keep going longer and you can chop it up yeah, and use it for yeah. a different show. <laughs> <laughs> He's got an answer. Yeah. You did the love cast. We started at when? I began the love cast on a community radio station in Nanaimo back in 2002. So between Alligator Wine Say and love cast, what were you doing? Okay, I lived in Vancouver for three years. I kind of dabbled at CITR radio, but it was too far away for me to get to. I worked in like corporate media, and then I moved. The reason I moved to, I kind of undermined any kind of career I could have had in media because I am very sensitive, and the big city got to me too much. I cannot take all the 
the traffic and the concrete and the garbage and people laying in the streets. And I really couldn't take the winters here. And so ultimately I've always been more attracted to being around nature, even though I'm a city person. So I went to Lovecast Island and that has been a challenge ever since. I've had to do many things. I remember hitchhiking around Vancouver Island when I first got there and I said, how do you live on a Gulf Island? Cause I fell in love with that. And everybody said, you have to do all kinds of things. So, and I'm still doing all kinds of things. So when I moved to Lovecast Island in the city of Nanaimo, a friend of mine was on the board. He was going to university and he's on the board for a new proposed uh, station at the campus there. And they knew I had experience. So they asked me to get involved and I did. And I was on the board for about a year and a half. And then I started the Lovecast in 2002. And then I moved it to CIUTFM in right at the beginning of 2019. So I produced it from my log cabin. I built a studio in my log cabin. I produced the show from my log cabin remotely and pre-produced and which was interesting because with a year later, everybody had to pre-produce your show because That's right. of COVID. And it is far harder to pre-produce your show. I put 20 hours a week into my show every week mm-hmm. because going on live, I'm, I'm really good at that because I've done it so long. I would have information on the computers and songs going off and I could just like just spin off information and all that. So I got really good at doing live. And so over the last few years, I look at these things as challenges. Just like when I said, I went in and approached the spoken word department and did editing rather than go for the music show. Now I'm very good at, I script my show, I edit, I do all that stuff. And that's more of the production of the show than doing it live. But my skills have gotten really strong. So instead of going, oh, this is too much work or, you know, it's too, it's a lot harder. It was easier than doing it live. It is, it really is. But I look at it as something that enriches me and gives me more skills. But I do miss coming in and doing it live. You get an endorphin fix from traveling to the station, coming in, you know, switching over with the person who's live, knowing that people are listening to it live, the phone could ring, that you get a certain happy chemicals in your brain from being in master control that you don't get. And pre-production is very tedious. Well, you know, I I started um, when the pandemic hit because previously, if I was going away for a while or something, he pre-produced a couple of shows, but they always sounded like it. Mm -hmm. And they never had that live quality to them. And when I first started doing the uh, pre-recorded shows during the pandemic, it took me about six to eight weeks before I felt comfortable in the environment that I was in. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, it's totally different time of day. Ambience is different. Mm -hmm. It's really hard to just sink into a comfortable position where you feel at ease on air. And And I I got there, you know, but mm -hmm. it took a while. And reading from a script. Yeah, that too. Because it takes a long time to sound natural. And I'm still trying to sound natural at that because, and also when you're like here, we're talking to one another, I'm all alone. You know, and for many years, I love doing interviews. I love it. And that's why Alligator Wine, we were building in a lot of interviews into that show. And I was doing that when the Lovecast was live, but I'm putting 20 hours already into the show. 
I've hooked myself up so I can do phone interviews in my studio, but that's another 10 hours of extra work editing those editing interviews, setting the interviews up and everything. But you don't have to use razor blades anymore. No, I don't. So I would like to do that, but it's just a huge amount of work. You know, it's like so many other things in life. It's a trade-off. Mm-hmm. I mean, coming into the studio and getting the happy chemicals in your, your mm-hmm. mind, and anybody in radio knows what Dave is talking about. It There's a, a, a sense of excitement. Mm-hmm. But there's also something very idyllic about the sound of you recording your show from Lovecast Island in your log cabin. I mean, that sounds pretty romantic. It is pretty cool, and I can understand that, yes, it is romantic, and it would I'm, I'm sure it would be romantic to the listener, but when it comes to fundraising... Mm. People respond better to live shows. And also, I'm way out there. I feel like I'm shouting into a vacuum sometimes. You don't get the feedback, right? right? Right. Well, also, you don't don't get the phone calls like you used to get because, like, most people are donating online now. So you don't have that system, you know, where everybody's running in with the, oh, this is the the latest totals and this is the, yeah, yeah, exactly. just gave you some money and... It's sort of like being in a vacuum. And we used to have the phones ringing in the background and people would hear the phones. Because one thing I learned about influence is people support what other people are supporting. So you can't go on air and say, the phones aren't ringing because that will get the opposite, right? That's right. People won't support things that people aren't supporting. But if you say, the phones are busy, so if you call in and you don't get through, the phones are, you know, going off the hook. So you're popular. People support things that are popular, but they don't support things that aren't popular. So you have to put that across to people. Do you, do you remember the, uh, this is probably in the late 80s, where our funding drive got canceled the week before and we did it anyway? I do not have clarity don't on remember that, that but, I, but you could probably remind me. <laughs> I think Shauna Farkas just couldn't get it together to do the funding. I think we she was the program director and the, yeah. the uh, station manager, Anthony uh, uh, Anthopoulos, yeah, I think. Was. Yeah, I forget his last name, um, but yeah. He, I, had, he quit and uh, left it to her, so she just canceled it, saying, I yeah. can't do all this. Yeah. And the volunteers just said, no, we're going to do fundraising. Yeah, because it was so important. Like, we were running on fumes. We, we, we couldn't afford a pair of Canada 3000 headphones. No, no. So we needed, <laughs> we needed to do it. There was no option to cancel. So, yeah. so that's what I mean. There are certain volunteers that will step up and just get in there and, and just make it happen. And other people who just say, I can only put the effort into my show. We don't have much time, Dave. But I just want to ask you the philosophy behind the Lovecast. Okay, well, maybe I could um, say what I was about to say, which is connected to that, is that I see community, there are all kinds of communities that make up other communities. So we've got the university community, we've got the community of the city, we've got the broadcast community because we do Southern Ontario, we have all the different uh, ethnic communities within our broadcast zone. So there are communities within communities within communities, and that has always been my agenda is to serve all those communities, include them into what we're doing and represent as much of those different communities as we can. As I always say, we, it's a we thing here, right? And the Lovecast, I created that because I'm, 
I'm not one of those people that put my head in the sand. I am very aware of global politics. And back in the day, we had a lot of spoken word shows that really kind of, you know, were very political and talk. We, we were ahead of our time. We were talking about climate change and all kinds of things. Gay well, rights. Gay rights. We yeah. had gay, gay, gay wire. Some of and all the first, kinds. first gay yeah, rights yeah, show yeah. on, on all, radio. All that stuff, right? Yeah. We, we were ahead of the curve on so much of that. And so I'm one of those people. I know what's going on in the world. And I'm not afraid of the dark stuff, but I also know that it can bring me down. And I wanted to create something where I could play positive, broad spectrum music to people each week. I called it the Love Cast because we were talking about happy chemicals. It's a way of reminding me what's important to focus on the positive, to focus on unity, to play songs that are inspiring, not songs that bring you down, but that inspire you or pull people together as a community. So um, that's my main thing. So every week, the love cast reminds me, even though things can get dark for me, it reminds me to always look on the well, right side. Well said, sir. And, and, and in so doing, it's reminding other folks that's what my hope is. Yeah, no, do. I'm sure yeah. it is. I'm yeah. sure it is. Well, so, I really yeah. like what you said about communities. Yeah. yeah. That's, that's really, really important. Yeah. What time is your show on and what day is your show on? My, my show is on from 4 to 6 p.m. on Saturdays, right following Phil's in, Brad Reed, who's great and he always bigs up the love cast, so I, big, <laughs> I want to big up Phil's in, 4 to 6 p.m., and I have been doing the show for 20 years, also on the West Coast before I brought it here. And I do have a couple of archives I'd like to tell people about. I have, um, you can go to a show page on CIUT.FM, my Lovecast show page, and there's a connection to my Podbean account where I've been uh, archiving the show since I've been back to CIUT. But I have about 12 years of shows on www.mixcloud.com forward slash Dave Rama. And I also have a tub, uh, a bin of cassette air checks from all my shows that I did back here <laughs> in the early days. I have not transcribed them, but I recorded all my shows. Me right? too. I've got them all. I know you yeah. transcribed a lot of them. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. So th those are my archives. You can also uh, join my Facebook uh, social media page, which is the Lovecast with Dave Rama on Facebook. And I post the links to my uh, shows after they air. And I have one last thing to say before we sign off, but uh, if you have any other questions before I say that. No, I'm fine. Okay. No, I just, uh, before we give it back to you, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Can I, can I thank you for actually training me how to use all this equipment in the first place? My pleasure. I'm, I'm really happy that I had some kind of influence over this place and had some kind of presence here. You so, did. Yeah, you, yeah. you had a big influence on this place. Yeah. I, I remember, like, you'd be the person that would diss another guy for doing a bad show. And rightly so. Nobody else would say anything to anybody. You know, you, you just starting out, we were trying out new things all the time. Mm -hmm. Stuff, certain things just didn't work. And Dave would say, that was shit. <laughs> <laughs> well, my, here's my philosophy, is that people are, who listen to commercial radio are used to a certain kind of formatting, right? If you are going to do an alternative to that, keep the formatting make the information the alternative. People want to hear a professional presentation, yeah. even if you're presenting content that is not commercial, the presentation should be professional. And I have always 
had that as my value. Well, so. we needed somebody to, to kick us in the rear end sometimes. <laughs> and the listener, who I keep coming back to, you know, requires that. Mm-hmm. They require that. They don't want to hear somebody going, hey, well, I, I don't no. know what that was. I can't find the album cover. You <laughs> we know, used like, to have a lot of that. We had a lot of that. And <laughs> well, I was just trying to get that across. You should be professional. Well, People yeah, aren't going to listen to you. Standards. You need certain yeah, standards. Yeah. And, and, you know, once you enter the, the, the realm of being sloppy... You know, it's it's a downhill. The the problem is some people who I'm a rebellious person. But some people are rebellious. They think that being rebellious is sloppy, or being rebellious is to rebel mm-hmm. against the actual place that's giving you the voice. Yeah. You know. Yeah. So okay, I just want to finish up to say I want to thank you very much for having me on this show. CIUTFM ha- has been a big influence in my life, and I'm so glad to still be a part of it. And I want to say the biggest influence CIUT has had on my life, I'd like to give credit to DB Hawks and to Hans Bergschmidt because. I became a vegan 30 years ago because of their broadcasting and D.B. Hawks was a vegan and I made fun of him when I first found out. (laughs) And so people do that to me and I want to apologize to him for making a joke about it and he influenced me and Hans influenced me with his programming about animal rights and I'm an animal rights activist and I'm a vegan because of this station and that's the most important thing that I've ever done in my life as an influence by this station. So... We've been speaking to Dave O'Rama, the host of Lovecast here on CIUTFM. It's been quite an enlightening conversation with Peter Stamp and I. And tune in next week for another edition of Radio Recall here on CIUTFM, looking at our uh, 1965 onwards till the present day. Congratulations to the station. 36 years is amazing. A lot of people never thought we were going to make it. And we almost didn't a few times, but here we are. And thank you, David, one more time. Thank you very much. I really appreciate being here. Nice meeting you, Peter. And again, Steve, nice to see you again. Love. To you too. Good. That's good, guys. Perfecto. Sounded great, man. Well, that was our interview with Dave O'Rama, host of Lovecast Radio Show. Heard every Saturday at 4 p.m. Right now, let's listen to some Radio Madness. That's a song by Owen Sound native David Formanger. You're listening to CIOT FM 89.5. He's got Radio Madness, a touch of phonograph fighters too. In this system of so much sadness Always searching for something new He's constantly switching speakers So determined to better the sound A new way to the seeker To make improvement all Tunes it down 
If you're one of CIT's alumni members, we'd be interested in speaking with you. Who knows, you might be a good subject for a future program. Radio Recall is produced by me, Steve Rootman, for CIUT Radio. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. Contact me at 334578 at CIUT.FM. Thanks to my co-host, Peter Stamp, and Razak Nurani, who works behind the scenes. Podcasted episodes of Radio Recall can be found at our website, the 3 wscoutfm slash shows slash radio hyphen recall. Mm-hmm.